0: Are you ready for some Word tonight? Yeah. All right. I'm very, very, as always, it's not unusual for me to be excited about the Word. I'm always very excited to open the Word, to shine the spotlight on the text, to look for Jesus, and as you know, to, to try and wrestle something out, to, to, to try and take something away that we go home with that's more than just a couple of points and a principle, but really an encounter. We're all on some form of spiritual journey, um, especially in this room. And for those watching or listening in the future, you're on a spiritual journey. It's part of the reason you click play on a, on a sermon and you follow along. Or it's part of the reason you're sitting here tonight because you are on some sort of spiritual journey. Part of that journey is a formation, an individual spiritual formation. You are being crafted by the hand of God spiritually. And this is the thing that I don't know that we talk about enough. You're participating whether you know it or not. You're participating when you pray. You're participating when you read. You're participating when you listen. And I'm talking about not just listening to sermons, but when you listen to the Spirit, when you respond to the Spirit, you're participating in your own spiritual formation. You're helping craft that vessel. If, if Jeremiah's illustration of a potter with clay helps, and it has helped a lot of us, because it's, it's something that's very visual and something that is prone to need a professional not just anyone can step up and decide they're they're going to make a a pot out of the clay i know what you're doing and so here's that illustration of the, of the potter fashioning us on the wheel and then of course there's the breakage the crash and rather than just throwing it out and starting over he knows how to 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 bring quality out of a disaster what would look like a disaster to a less skilled artisan. Well, that's, the father's an artisan and he knows what he's doing. Paul one time said that you are his masterpiece. That's a pretty big word. It means that God is pretty excited about what he's doing in you. He's pretty excited about what he's forming in you, but you're participating in that you're pliable and that you listen and that you wrestle and that you take these things to heart and then you apply them to your life. That's part of the journey. How do we marry that concept with it is finished? I mean, Jesus did the work on my behalf, right? I mean, Jesus hangs on the cross and says, it is finished. He literally uses a Greek word that means it's, there's nothing left to do. Um, and yet, here's God doing stuff. He's doing stuff in your life, in your life, in my life. So we know that Christ finished the work in a very spiritual sense as far as He doesn't have to do anything else to forgive us of our sins. He doesn't have to do anything else to make us righteous. God's not, you know, sort of... Uh, twirling his thumbs in heaven, going, you know, what's next? You know, what are we going to do with this COVID? Uh, What are we going to do with the economy? What are we going to, you know, God's not, he's not freaked out. And he's certainly not still working on stuff to affect our redemption. And yet here's God working. And we know those two things are compatible, finished the work. And yet all of us go, God's working, right? Someone says, oh, what?" you know, I don't know if God's doing anything. And we, we go, God's working, God's working finished the work. So how did he finish the work? And he's still working. And so I want to, I want to work on that a little bit tonight because I don't think it's I'm not trying to make it deep. I'm not trying to make it lofty or over our heads. It's, I think it's maybe quite simple. Um, part of it is that we, we, I think part of it is something we already deeply inherently know. God did the work that needs done, but God is working in me so I can get to that end point that God knows he has designed for me. He is a potter that has already imagined what the pot should look like. He knows it. He's it's like that famous story of Michelangelo who saw his massive piece of granite and he hit his hammer against the side of it. It was just it was a piece of granite, granite that probably would have taken up half this room and and uh, he just kept hitting the side of that granite. Someone asked the master what he was doing. And he said, well, I'm beginning the steps of releasing Moses. He said, he's in there. I've just got to let him out. And so he, he, he could see him and he knew that all he really had to do was strip away. What wasn't Moses. That was how he described it to his assistant. He said, all I do is strip away. What isn't Moses until I find him. And sometimes I imagine that that's God with us going, finish the work. I see you in there. I'm just stripping away what isn't the finished product. I'm going to get to the finished product. I'm a master craftsman. That's God to us. I'm a master craftsman. I'm going to get to the finished product. I'd love for you to come along on the journey. I'd love for you to enjoy this journey and and revel in it a little bit. And so I think that all of us that is part of the journey. I am complete. The Bible tells us that we are complete in him. And yet I'm still growing. You are in his fullness. And yet we are still sometimes thirsty or hungry spiritually. And so let's find out if this is a modern phenomenon or if there is some text that can help us. And I think you probably know there's something in there that we need to pay attention to. Go to Colossians. I want to meet you in a letter written by the Apostle Paul, to the church at Colossae. Um, Colossians is, is a fascinating little book. It's, it's sort of a, in some ways, it's a mirror of, it, of Ephesians. Uh, it contains a lot of the same basic principles. Uh, but Ephesians has always been considered a little bit more of the church of Jesus. This is what it should look like. There's that whole marriage passage and you're you're part of his fullness. Colossians is a little more, instead of the church of Jesus, Colossians is a little more Jesus in the church, the Christ of the church. Here's what he looks like. So they're great. They're kind of great books to really bring together because they give you a little bit more of a composite picture of both the church in Christ and Christ in the church. And that's always something Paul's trying to make preeminent. I want to take you to the first chapter and the 24th verse. And I want to read down through uh, verse 27, beginning in Colossians 1.24, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of His body, which is the church. Colossians one twenty seven is probably one of Paul's most famous passages. It's that, uh, I'll, I'll use my wording a little more um, here rather than his, but it's that moment where he says there's been a mystery from the beginning and God chose in this hour to reveal the mystery through people that are not considered His people. Instead of revealing the mystery to Judaism or to Israel, He revealed the mystery through Gentiles, strangers, aliens. Well, he's talking salvation language, obviously, because who gets to come into Christ? Well, everyone, but not just Israel, not just Judaism. That's the beauty of what Christ has done is he flings wide the doors. Everybody gets to come in, every race, every tongue uh, from all time gets to come in. That's the Gentiles. And Paul says the mystery that no one could possibly imagine is that Christ actually lives in us the hope of glory. When we read these passages, we get so excited about Colossians one twenty seven. we focus there. I've, I bet I've done a hundred sermons in, in a couple of decades plus, at least a hundred sermons, revolving around that concept, Christ inside of you, the hope of glory. What does that look like? What does that mean? And when I first really had a revelation of grace in the finished work, it was a powerful verse to me because it meant that Christ isn't over there and I'm over here and we have this big gap, but Christ is in me. And that whatever God wants to do by showing me His glory isn't just outside of me. It's in me. And that's a, that, that blew my mind when I came into this. That was because I came up in environments of camp meetings and revivals where you went to find the glory of the Lord. And everybody would always say, God's glory is going to fall in this place, in this meeting. Or God's going to reveal Himself here tonight. And I always thought God revealed Himself externally. And I kept waiting on it, and and I saw great, mighty m- things. But I felt that's where it happens. So get in church as much as you can, because then you'll get to see more of God's glory. And when I had a revelation that Christ is in me, the hope of glory. Wow, Christ in me it means he goes home with me, and it means he lives with me. And wow, a little bit scary, honestly, because he's not just at church. He's with me, which means, you know, i got to straighten up. <laughs> I can't be, you know, i gotta, I got I to gotta, I gotta pick it up a little bit because he's in me. He's not just at church going, I knew what you did this week. Instead, he's, I was there when you did it this week, which I know I always knew. But, of course, the moment you internalize Christ, you know, you feel like the spotlight goes on everything. We could sit here tonight for an hour and talk Christ in you, the hope of glory, and we'd have a great, great time. I I love talking about Christ in you, the hope of glory. I think it's one of the thrills of New Covenant theology is that you get to internalize what could, in most of our circles, have only been externalized. We get that, and you get that every day. But I'm not going to do that. Um, Not because it's not fun, but because there's something else there that we read that we miss. And I don't know if we miss it because we're on our way to a great verse. Because we know 127's coming. Or I don't know if we miss it because subconsciously we don't know what to do with it. So we just sort of stumble through it and we move on and figure, oh well, someday we'll figure it out. And I don't know how long we're waiting on someday. You know what I mean? Like I've read verses my entire life and went, oh someday I'll, get, I'll figure that out. And then decades go by and you go, when am I ever going to take the time and work on that verse? Let's do that. So go back to 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of His body, which is the church. And so I want to ask what I think now that you've refocused on this verse. See, I could feel you catch that as we reread it. I could even see some eyes like, ooh, wait a minute. I kind of missed that the first... 100 times when I read through that verse, but now that you force me to slow down a little bit There's a pretty heretical statement in the middle of that verse. I don't know if you caught it And if not, let me put a little spotlight on it for you. I fill up in my flesh. What is lacking? in the afflictions of Christ Paul says I fill up in my physical body what lacks in what Christ put in his physical body The reason I say it's a little heretical is because what other word are you gonna use for it? Because in modern English, what he said was, I feel like I'm taking abuse and persecution and pain and embarrassment. And what is really happening is I'm taking in me what Christ didn't take in him. And the reason why that's obviously heretical is Christ bore everything in him he bore my sickness and my sin and my shame and my guilt etc etc so i don't have to convince you of that part of why you love christ is because you see him as the ultimate lightning rod for whatever was on its way into the human family whatever was plaguing us whatever was hurting us he said if i be lifted up i'll draw all of it into me jesus said so what gives paul the right? In Colossians 1.24 to say, in my flesh I fill up the afflictions. In light of where we opened, it is finished. God did the work and finished it at Calvary, and then here's Paul. Well, let's start with the obvious. Paul's not a heretic. I'm going to get that out of the way now. This isn't one of those sermons that just gets darker and darker as you realize, this guy just thinks we ought to kick Paul out of the Bible. I don't agree with that. I will tell you, I don't think Paul's statement is heretical. If we can get inside the mind of what I think the Apostle Paul is thinking as he writes this, and we're not running off into some deep end tonight or wading out into some strange interpretation, I want to stay pretty strict to the way that I feel the New Testament lays out this, the salvation story. And when you do that, you've got to acknowledge a couple things about salvation. We've got to look at the objective and we've got to look at the subjective. And of course, the objective is on God's part. That is what God has done. That is what God is doing. And that is what God will do. It's up to Him. It's not up to me. It's not up to you. It is objective. God said it. I believe it. It is so, right? But the I believe it part is subjective that is subjective to me subjective to what I do with the word or what I do with faith or what I do with this text God can't make me wrestle with the Bible he can't make he he won't whether he can or he will he won't make me but he isn't offended by it in fact I think God loves it when we take him to test Otherwise, there would be no Israel. I've told you this before. Israel is he who contends with God. If you want to watch God develop a people in the Old Testament, he develops it around someone who takes him to the mat. And I think Paul's one of those guys. So let's be those guys. Let's be that that takes this to the mat. And so that's subjective. That's on me. So let's deal with it as finished. It is finished objectively Absolutely. God finished the work. Jesus paid it all. Nothing I can do about that. God loves humanity. Nothing I can do about it. I love to say to people, God loves you so much, there's nothing you can do about it. That's objective, right? He loves you so much. You know, yeah, but I don't, want to, I don't want him to love me. Too bad. Subjective love. There's nothing you can do about it. He loves you in spite of yourself. When you're hateful and you're mean and you're rebellious or you think you're an atheist or an agnostic and you've pushed God out of your life. It's okay. He loves you anyway. I didn't say that the subjective side's being returned. You don't have to love him back. He would love for you to love him back. Subjectively, that's between you and God. Your faith is on your shoulders. Your desire for him is yours, not his. As far as God's concerned, it is finished. He did the work. Subjectively, what do I have to do? Well, I respond, right? Right? I participate. This is my spiritual formation. And so I have a part that I play. Paul is willing. Look at that verse again. I rejoice, in fact. Not just I'm willing. I rejoice in my sufferings for you. And I fill up in my flesh what's lacking in the afflictions. And I do it for the sake of the church or the sake of his body. I think Paul, first point, is willing to suffer as a participant of Christ for the good of the church in order to make the gospel known. So let's get this out of the way. Within the immediate context, Paul says, everything I'm taking into me, I'm doing it for the good of you. I'm doing it so that you will know him, so that you will see that someone cares for you, so that you will see that someone loves you. I don't know what's going on in the church at Colossae, but Paul believed that he could be some form of liaison to show them the seriousness of God's love as they watched him suffer on their behalf. To so go, look, church, I'm doing this because I love you. I'm suffering this persecution because I love you. I'm suffering this pain because I love you. I'm suffering this problem because I love you. And and, and, and we're on our way. Because I, I I believe that when you walk out tonight, you you can have a very clear, as clear as we can do, but a very clear idea of not only what Paul said, but what Paul meant and why it's vital for you. So we're on our way to that. Okay. On the way there is a few things that I want to lay out as a, I think a principle for, for who we are in Christ and what this looks like. I want you to know that God has not chosen to bring salvation through the, to the world through prosperity and success. God chose from the beginning of the gospel message to bring salvation to the world through suffering. How do you know? Go to the cross. When God brought salvation to the world, He could have done it at the tip of a sword. He had legions of angels waiting in the heavens to pull Christ off of the cross in the event that Christ wants the glory of God without the suffering. What's Calvary? I mean, it's the epitome of suffering. It is Christ the man. It's Jesus the man laying his life down for the very people who kill him. And the first words out of his mouth at Calvary? Father forgive them, they know not what they do. That's our first hint that something weird's happening here. This guy isn't dying as a normal man dies. This guy is dying as a prototype of death. He's dying as to show us what real suffering looks like. And when the resurrection happens and the stone rolls away and the new man Christ comes out of the tomb, it shows us that God truly wins because God recreates man. He created man in a garden in Genesis and he recreates a man in a garden in the Gospels. And the first Adam fails, but the last Adam succeeds. That's Paul's message of the new covenant is to say that where the first Adam messed up, the last Adam, not the second Adam, the last Adam, cause there's not gonna be another one, the last Adam succeeds. And how did he do it? Totally without, this just doesn't even make any sense. He did it by dying. He did it by dying. You don't win by dying. And it flips the entire dynamic forever on how we think of society and how we think of power and how we think of God. If you don't think of God differently when you look at the cross, then I dare say the cross hasn't had its ultimate effect on you. Because once you see the cross, you realize that God's victory doesn't come because God smashes people or God destroys people, but because God allows Him to be, Himself to be smashed and allows himself to be destroyed. It's why in the book of Revelation, the lamb is as if it is freshly slain because the lamb that wins in Revelation is still bleeding from the cross because victory comes by suffering. So God didn't choose to spread the gospel through success and through prosperity. That doesn't mean God's anti-success or anti-prosperity. It means that the gospel message finds its strength in sacrifice and suffering. Listen, there's no way around that. I, I don't think we can follow a crucified Jesus if we don't see the source of the power of God's love at the point of crucifixion. It's the old, Paul called it the display case of God's love. To the Romans, he said, God displays or manifests his love to us in that while we were yet sinners christ died for us he displayed love by dying and he displayed love by dying at the hands of someone else and dying innocent he became guilty for all of us that were guilty an innocent man dies and from the place of his sacrifice there comes the gospel so god didn't choose to bring salvation through success god didn't choose to bring salvation through prosperity it's why The church struggles, given enough success. Given enough prosperity and ease and comfort, the church almost always struggles. In any environment, across time, and through all cultures, the church is at her weakest when she allies with the powers of the world, when she has the strength of governments, kings, and presidents behind her. The church is at her fattest her slowest, her sloppiest, her laziest. But look throughout history at the places where the church, from the place of suffering, survived. And the revivals that changed portions of the world, in some cases, small portions of the world or your immediate world, but then in many cases, the world itself, from from the point of suffering, from the place of pain, I, I jotted this down from a Romanian pastor. Listen to this: Christ's cross was for a propitiation; our cross is for propagation. What's that mean? Christ's cross paid for stuff. My cross promotes what Christ paid for. You see, my burden doesn't save a soul. Whatever I whatever I suffer under can't save you. You looking at Paul White isn't going to save. but what I suffer under can work as a salesman for the cause of the kingdom and for who Christ is, because I become a bit of a window into the goodness of God when you watch my life and you say, I see what he's going through. I I feel what she's going through. It makes me believe there's a God in heaven. It makes me believe there's still a miracle working God. It makes me believe that God is good. I don't bear anyone's burdens, but I do promote a Christ that bears burdens. And so my cross, your cross, your burden, isn't to propitiate anyone, but to propagate the gospel. He also said this, Christ suffered to accomplish salvation while we suffer to spread salvation. I think that's a great way to say it. So whatever suffering Christ had, he did it to bring salvation to me. Whatever suffering I might have, you might have, we do it so that salvation is promoted to someone else. That leads me to this thought. We're still on our way. We're going to settle on 24, but we're still on our way. Here's just some things I, I haven't been with you in weeks. So that means I jot stuff down, I'm thinking stuff over, working through stuff, I go, let's save that for chapin. All right You guys know you know my you know you, you got guinea pig status once in a while with me, all right? Our role is not to get to heaven. Let me just pause right there, dot dot dot. <laughs> okay? Our role. In Christianity, in salvation, in following Christ, our role is not to get to heaven. Meaning as well that the pastoral role is not to get you to heaven. Contrary to what some pastors preach. I couldn't disagree more. All due respect to to leadership. It isn't easy to be a pastor. So sometimes we say stupid things and we don't mean it. We just, we might mean it, but we, (laughs) We we, we shouldn't mean it. But we've said it and I've said it too. I've said to my congregations before, my role is to get you to heaven. No. Um, That's not even your role. It's not my role. It's not your role. Our, Our role is not to get to heaven. Our role is to be a participant in the restoration of all things through Christ. If your role was to get to heaven, he might as well save you, kill you, take you home. But he doesn't. He saves you and then he holds your hand through all kinds of hell and he puts heaven into some of it and the garden grows and not every day is easy some days are awful but he never leaves you and he never forsakes you why doesn't he just take you out I mean if the object's to get everybody to heaven if what God really wants is to populate heaven with earth we need worshipers up here in heaven why don't he just take you out but you see God's not in the abandonment business we in some cases, want to abandon what we see going on in the world. We just wish you could burn it all down and start over. God is not that way. He's not in the abandonment business. He's in the restoration business. God isn't looking at planet Earth going, I don't think they're going to make it. We're 2,000 years too late for that. When Jesus died at the cross and the stone rolled away, the kingdom was already spreading. God doesn't lose. Now, the end result for in your lifetime may not be what you think it is. It may not be what we think it is, but the kingdom doesn't lose. If I thought there was a chance the kingdom would lose, I would give up on following Christ. What's the point? Because if he's depending on us to make it happen, I don't trust people at a red light. <laughs> Much less trust people, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm double, I'm triple checking. Much less you restore the earth through your faith. Forget it. No. No. I mean, I'm not trusting you with anything that's that world changing. The kingdom wins because Christ is alive and the king is on his throne and all of the kingdoms of the earth become the kingdoms of our God and that's how the text preaches the end. The kingdoms of the earth become the kingdoms of our God. So what are we here for? Because we are active participants in the restoration of all things and it starts in us as we watch him restore us from what we were into what we will be. We do it because He finished the spiritual work on our behalf. And it's not manifested as finished in me. So I walk it out every day and I believe him every day and I meet him in prayer and I meet him in his word and I listen to the sound of his voice and I follow his Holy Spirit for peace and I fail and I fall down and I take three steps backwards sometimes for every step I take forward and it feels like I'm going in the wrong direction. And yet, here we are with him loving us And shedding his, sharing with us the glory of who he is. And how does it manifest? For too long, we have thought it manifested with success. I'll know I'm getting somewhere with God when I have more money in the bank, when I'm never sick, when I'm not depressed when I'm not discouraged. We'll know we're a nation of God whenever these people aren't in power or those kind of laws don't get passed or this kind of stuff doesn't happen. And we've made a mistake and believe that the gospel spreads because things are good. And it's never been a gospel of when things are good. The kingdom isn't winning because you're making better money. The kingdom isn't winning because your blood pressure's under control. The kingdom isn't winning because you have success in school. The kingdom of God advances because Christ is alive in you as the hope of glory. And He's calling out to you to actively participate in the restoration of your mind and your body and your soul and the world around you. And how will it manifest? Paul said, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ doesn't mean Jesus didn't pay it all. It means I get to participate in my flesh and see the filling up of the Christ that's in me as the hope of glory. Christ is in there as the hope of glory. That's where he goes in in three verses. But he opens by saying, the journey to understanding the Christ that's in you is knowing that the sufferings you go through and the pain that you go through and the problems that you go through are not to be bemoaned as if you're away from God, but to be celebrated as evidence that Christ is in you and hasn't left you. Oh, and then this is why the early church at every turn Let me slow down and say this. If you do an intense Bible study with a lot of Sunday schools, churches, adult groups, whatever, and you really dig into the the meat of the apostles as they write the epistles, there will always be something that you got to kind of hem-haw around in the teaching and and always kind of dance around. And that's the infatuation of the apostolic writers with suffering and persecution. They're always saying stuff like, I rejoice in persecutions. I count myself blessed to suffer with Christ. And they're all over the place in the New Testament. And you're always kind of having a dance around them with Bible studies. It's like, oh, you know, they, they, they were under a different system than we are. They were being persecuted. They had to learn how to, to, to find glory in the suffering, but that's not God's will for us. And it's incredible that we're so averse to bad things happening. We're so averse to it that we have created a culture, even within the church, that we're, if enough bad things are happening, it's one of two things. Either A, God is doing it to you to try to show you something, or B, you've sinned so much, you're out of God's protection. That's how we preach suffering in the American church. Let me say it again. Bad things happening? Well, God's trying to teach you a lesson. So he's brought this to you. Hopefully you get it. I mean, if you'll get it, you could it it would stop. So humble yourself, pray, seek God, ask him to you. whatever. Get the lesson, solve the lesson, God will take all this away. That attributes every bad thing to God cancer, tumors, rape, adultery. Oh, yeah, well, God didn't make it happen, but God's God's, you know, working through it, making. It. I've stood over enough. Caskets of little kids to stop preaching that foolishness. Because if you want to cause somebody to walk out and tell God they're done with him, then attribute every bad thing that happens in people's lives to a God that's teaching you a lesson you can't possibly understand. Because how in the world are you going to learn that lesson? Or the second one you have sin in your life, you just won't admit it, if you would bunch of this stuff will go away. The early church didn't preach either of those things. Instead, they said, when the bad happens, Paul, Paul got so infatuated with the bad that he started to say things like, I'm excited about, I count it joy when I find myself falling into persecutions. In other words, I'm it lets me know that the Christ in me, it gives me such an opportunity to glorify the Christ in me every time I get to go through some hell because when I go through hell, I get to look over and see Christ going through hell with me and it excites me that He's right there beside me. And we, that's, that's mind-blowing when I read the New Testament. I go, I, I'm not asking God for that kind of Christianity. But I know that the power of God and the presence of God and the glory of God flows in a place, not where I go looking for trouble, but where I go looking for Jesus in my trouble. That everything I walk into, I stop blaming God. You're trying to teach me something, i got to get unrepentant. Instead, I grab hold of the resurrected Christ's hand and I go, I'm not sure what we're going to learn through this, but this is... this cancer, this tumor, this adultery, this rape, this murder, it's happening to you because you're in me, the hope of glory. If it's happening to me, it's happening to Jesus. And he walks through it with me. And that's why Paul said in my flesh, I fill up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Not that Christ didn't, wasn't afflicted on my behalf, but I get to participate in what Jesus went through there. And then one more vital thing, and this is what I really feel like you can walk out of here with and realize you have a purpose and a role in this world, and that is this. Paul was living in a generation in which there was a tiny slice of people who knew the physical Jesus, all right? I just want to paint the contextual picture for a moment. Paul's writing this somewhere between... 55 A.D. and 63 A.D. He's probably dead by 64, if if our history's correct on Paul. Um, The bulk of his ministry happens in the middle of the first century, less less than a half a generation after the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. Paul's peers in the gospel, the Peters, the James, the Johns, walked with Jesus. And that's why they held such high regard among the early church. There's a little bit of a, a little, just a little hint of bitterness at times in Paul's writings about that, that he didn't walk with the physical Jesus, and that he's he even calls himself an apostle born out of time. He's like, I'm, I'm you know, I don't have to answer to these guys. I follow the same Jesus, but you know, that's the seat of the church. I mean, we're talking minuscule that actually saw him to the point that by 2 Corinthians 6, Paul goes, none of us know him according to the flesh anymore. Like we don't know the physical Jesus. Now, if you were standing at the foot of the cross and you saw the spear go in his side and blood and water flowed and it splashed on your face and you touched the robe that the soldiers gambled for and you heard Jesus say with his own mouth, father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The impact that the suffering Christ would have on you. I don't even, can we, I mean, we watch a movie of Jesus dying and we get impacted. Can you imagine standing there? Almost no one could because almost no one did. And by the middle of the first century, there's not very many people left who saw the afflictions of Christ. Here's the problem. The gospel is a gospel that is spread through the message of affliction and sacrifice and death. And yet you can't watch Jesus sacrifice and be afflicted and die because there was no one videotaping it. And so what does the afflictions of Christ on the cross lack for the Colossian church? None of them get to see it. God can't prove his love. To the, to the Colossian church, through the cross that they can't see. Paul was so big on this that when he writes to the Galatians later, he says, I've preached Christ so much in front of you, it's as if he were crucified in front of you. He says that to the Galatian church. Why did he do that? Because he knew that if you could just see Jesus die, oh man, you'd believe in the suffering love of God because you would hear Jesus say, Father, forgive my accusers and my killers. They don't know what they're doing. And you would say, that's, the love. that's a love I'll die for right there. And so Paul, knowing that no one could have that kind of revelation, says, you can see it through me. I fill up what his afflictions lack. Because to me, the only thing his afflictions lack is that we don't get to see them. But if we'll open our eyes to people being afflicted, to people being stepped on, to people being persecuted, to people being hated, to people being destroyed, if we'll open our eyes to them, stop segmenting them, marginalizing them, politicizing them, stop making them the enemy, stop making them the us, the them to your us if you can see in that a little bit of suffering and a little bit of pain and a little bit of heartache mingled with rage and confusion and embarrassment. Sure, that's what you're going to see in it because that's what we put into our suffering. But if you can see Jesus in that, then what that person is doing is filling up what the affliction of Christ lacks Because your eyes get to see the stranger in pain. The hopeless one. The hurting. And you get to see it in your brothers and your sisters. You know why community is so vital? Because we get to bring our struggles and our pain and our failures and our issues and our difficulties into the same room. And in you. And when you suffer. I get to watch you fill up in your body. What, I can't see Jesus, Philip, and his? Because I don't get to go see Jesus at Calvary, but I get to watch my brother. And so how I watch my brother respond, that becomes my Jesus. Not I serve him, I see Christ through him. I point to this brother for that very reason. Because then you take the affliction and you go, I'm filling, listen, that helps when you're the one being afflicted. Because then you can go, I receive in my flesh I fill up in my flesh what lacks in his affliction. When someone watches me go through this, may they see what they are not seeing in what my Jesus did. May they be able to see it in me. May they be able to see it in how I come through this and how I continue to praise my God and how I don't walk away from the faith. May they see that. And in seeing that, Jesus said, they'll see your good works and they'll glorify your Father which is in heaven. And that's what Paul said for the church at Colossae. He said, I want you to see all this bad stuff happening to me as a filling up of whatever you lack when you look at Jesus. If you can't see it in Jesus, see it in me. And man, if we could start to live that way. I'm not saying we'd be excited about afflictions, but I'd say we'd stop blaming God. And at least we would start to say, Father, bring healing, bring a touch, bring a miracle, but whatever you bring, may you shine like a light through how I walk through this affliction. Teach me how to walk through this affliction because I could fill up in my flesh whatever's lacking. When my neighbor looks at the church and they're discouraged with the church and they're mad at that pastor and they hate God and they're sick of the Bible. And then they watch me. And if I'm not careful, I can cause them one more reason to doubt God because all I do is whine and complain and let it destroy me. Or I could be the first person they ever see who walks through the fire with the Jesus I know that is with me. And may I fill up in my body what's lacking in the afflictions when they look at the church or when they look at Christ not because i'm their savior but because i can shine a light on my savior and maybe in me they can see it listen that's the propagation of the gospel did you know that's why we're still here after 2000 years not because jesus has been coming back in every generation holding camp meetings and healing people by seasides no because people have been surviving afflictions and persecutions and tribulations and pain and hell and holding their heads up to their Father and saying, in the middle of it, Christ is in me, the hope of glory. And whole generations of people have come to Christ because of that and said, that's the God that I want to serve. It's why I am concerned when the bulk of our converts come in because they've been presented with a God that if you'll accept Him, your life will go better. Come to Jesus, He'll fix stuff. Come to Jesus. It's a great life to live if you come to Jesus because He'll take all your problems and roll them away. And then the first problem they have, they feel like someone sold them a lie. And instead of introducing the people to Jesus as the problem solver, how about we introduce them to Jesus as the one who restores the world and asks for us to participate? The restoration of the world's a dirty job right i mean how are you going to restore anything that's broken it's a dirty job you ever fixed up anything knocked down broken down (sighs) sometimes you just want to knock the whole thing down dig a big hole shove it off in the hole put dirt over the top of it and start over right i mean if i were god that's what i think i would do with this mess just go oh you know what forget it i mean i put a bunch of planets in the solar system we'll just start on mars let's just start over (laughs) All i got to do is give Mars a good atmosphere, change the gravitation, just make it a habitable zone. We'll just put a new Adam and a new Eve over there. We'll start all over again. These people aren't going to know the difference. They're all going to kill themselves anyway. So just let them go to hell. But I don't believe that. This is why I'm the ultimate optimist, because I'm a believer in the kingdom. God doesn't lose. I'm not a believer in all of us, but I'm a believer in the Christ in us. It's why I try to preach Christ to people. Because if I could get you to believe Christ actually lives in you, you might take it serious. And if you took it serious, you might care about your neighborhood. You might care about your neighbor. You might start caring about your enemy. I mean, it's one thing to care about the people that like you. What, what would happen in the world if you started caring about the people that didn't? This is an absolute restoration. God asks you to participate. Your job's not to get to heaven. Getting to heaven's God's job for you. He's going to take you there. That's all on Him, man. But you get the role of participating in this beautiful renewal. We are the visual. Of Christ's afflictions, we speak of Jesus to the world. And how do we get them to believe it? Because we're rich, because we're successful, because we're happy, or because we survive through suffering. Goes a lot farther. And he knew it would. It's why he decided to inaugurate the kingdom by dying on a cross. Not so that you would go die, but so that you would realize... Suffering isn't bigger than your king. He just goes into suffering and he comes out the other side, a resurrected man. And he tells you, you can do the same because Christ is in you, the hope of glory. What's the glory? Stone rolled away, tomorrow could be better. I walk through this with Jesus because Christ is in me, the hope of all glory. Part of the reason that I said what I did, I'm landing, about going to heaven is not your role, is because the message of go to heaven has given us, it has reinforced a hyper individuality in the church. Because what it has done is made us think only about our individual soul going to heaven. And following Christ was never simply about your individual soul, you are an individual person. Within the body of Christ, not an individual outside of the body of Christ. Okay? So, this is why this community that we have here has become more important to you because as you have become part of the community, you have realized that the individual gets strengthened. He or she gets stronger. Why is that? Because when God made Adam, he made Adam with a need. He said, it is not good for man to be alone. Okay, time out. Then why'd you make him alone? Oh, you shouldn't talk to God that way. This is good. Wrestle this kind of stuff with God. Okay, this is okay. God says it's not good that man be alone. Time out. Why'd you make him alone then? Here's the answer to that, I think. So that man would know what it was like to be alone and he would realize it wasn't good. Okay, so all it takes is just, you go be an individual for a while, and you'll realize that some community would be a good idea. So God puts Adam to sleep, pulls a rib out of his side, fashions Eve and hands, him, hands her to Adam, and Adam goes, At last, I see, I see the image of God in another human being. This is the way the world's supposed to work. And God then branches out of community. So your growth happens within relationship. It's why there's an Eve. And it's why Adam without Eve had a lack, because we all do. The community of believers, why are they important? Because they help us in the midst of our suffering and in the midst of our pain, they lift our arms, they become our support. I think we would do better in the world church if the world could enter the doors of the church and see shattered, broken, worn out, beat up, exhausted people who loved one another and who believed for the hope of glory. And that's so opposite of how we're trying to mold it. Cause we're trying to be fancy and welcoming and fun and happy and up and full of life. And I'm not against any of that. Who would be, what moron would be against happy or against life? but is it creating disciples of Christ or is it creating members of big churches? Is it creating disciples of a Christ who walks through crisis or is it adding to the bottom line of a burgeoning budget and the need to expand? It's not about the individual building or the church that I'm even talking about, but the body of Christ at large. If anything, last year when I worked through the seven churches in the book of Revelation, if it taught me anything, it was this. There's so much pain and problems in those seven churches. So why do we act like pain and problem in our church is a sign that our church is unhealthy? Pains and problems in our church is not a sign that our church is unhealthy. It's a sign that our church is walking through the fire with the Jesus who stands in the midst of the candlesticks. I think that's more appealing to people that are on a journey that are in need, that walk in from the world looking for help, and all they got in their life's hell. If they could walk in and see that it's a room full of broken people who are filling up what lacks in the body of Christ through their own afflictions, and in that you get to see God? Wow. There might be hope yet for a broken world if the church could admit that broken people belong there. Being broken is part of the prerequisite. Yeah, you're welcome to our group, but you got to bring some problems, man. You got to bring some issues. You got to have some difficulties. You got to have some junk in your life. If you don't have any of that, you don't need us. We're a community. What we need is your honesty. And if you're honest, then you probably got some demons. You got some dragons in the basement. You got some darkness in your heart. You got some brokenness and some pain and some tears and some heartache and some anger. And a lot of it's at God and the church. That's okay because that's a bunch of us. But Christ is in us. The hope that there can be a better tomorrow than there is a today. Don't be afraid if the people in your life wrestle with that truth. Don't be afraid if they struggle. Let them struggle. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. You say, well, I'm scared if they struggle too much, they'll lose the faith. Nothing tries faith like trouble. I say this to parents all the time. You want your kids to be safe or you want your kids to be strong? If you want your kids to be safe, helicopter them. Stay over them all the time. Hover. Control everything they do. Keep them safe. Don't you dare let the world hurt them. Be a good parent. Or, you want them to be strong. And how do you be strong? You fall down and you get up and you fall down and you get up and you fall down and you get up. up. And the people around you keep helping you get back up and keep their hands off of you when you walk away, knowing that you're probably going to fall down. But That's okay. I'd rather you be strong than safe. That's your God. And we question him because he doesn't always keep us safe. And he goes, I'd rather you be strong than safe. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You're just not going to figure it out if you don't fall down. You're more than what you think you are. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. That's good news. That's good news. Daddy, thank you tonight for such a wonderful time in your presence. Thank you for such a fun journey through the Word. Just a few little verses with so much power in them. It's like we 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 rejoice at twenty-seven when we. Read that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. We're confused at 24 when Paul is filling up in his flesh what lacks in the afflictions of Christ. But when we start to realize that filling up in our flesh what lacks in the afflictions of Christ doesn't mean you didn't do it. It means that you, you, that's in us, is inviting us to participate in the restoration of all things, to see our affliction as an opportunity. That our cross is not the propitiation for the sins of the world, but is the propagation of the gospel of God's love. And then that'll change how we treat the stranger and the marginalized and the hurting. And they'll no longer, it'll be us versus them. It'll be us with an opportunity for them. Make us that church. Make us that people. May it begin tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.